we all know that we live in a time that is deeply polarized. We find people on most the, almost every opposite of the spectrum in every conversation. Last week, as we started our conversation on this series, Hard Conversations, we said that we realize and we hold and own that God knows all truth, but we still are the interpreters of that, and we see only a reflection. This morning, as we continue this idea of hard conversations, We look at the importance of being loving and the idea of being right and how they are not at opposite ends of the spectrum. We'll see that it doesn't mean loving is greater than being right. It doesn't mean that uh, it's better to be loving than it is to be right. It doesn't mean that it's better to be right than it is to be loving. It is, however, as loving is as important as being right. So as I said last week, we don't have to look very far to realize that there is an increasing religious, political, and social divide happening in our world. In fact, it's happening in almost every conversation. And we've read some of those conversations last week that you guys have submitted. There are some really hard conversations in our time. On top of that, we looked at last week how often we live in these echo chambers of people just like us, and they continue to fuel our fire. If you don't know what an echo chamber is and you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon. I think that is an important piece to understand. And as you do that, you'll see that I think echo chambers are an increasing problem in the world that we live in thanks to the Internet, thanks to social media, and thanks to our choice of media networks. Like, we can choose who fuels our fire. In fact, researcher Ed Stetzer uh, just released a new book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. I love that title. Listen to that. Christians in the Age of Outrage. That's how he describes the world in which we live in. He said that when he polled churches with, I think he did it with Gallup, he said uh, 49% of all evangelicals, those like you and me, readily admit that they tend to follow and befriend those most like them on social media. That's an echo chamber. We just want to be around the people like us so that we can talk about everyone that's not like us. This is an echo of the chamber that we live in. As we move through this series, I would encourage you to also pick up the free devotional booklet that you'll find in the lobby. It's on a blue table. Please pick it up. It's a short read, but I think it's valuable just as a resource as we move along. Um, There's also cards on the blue tables. Feel free to pick them up and encourage your neighbors. And even if you don't want to invite them, On a Sunday morning, maybe you can just give them a card and say, hey, we're talking about a good, important series on Sunday. Uh, I would encourage you to uh, just listen to it online. So those cards are at your disposal. Now the vision and uh, kind of the story behind our Hard Conversation series is this. It's our Sunday morning series uh, studying to learn how we can reflect Jesus to one another even as we reflect the hard conversations of our days. This idea that we are called to reflect Jesus in these hard conversations. There seems to be some conversations that are always just a little harder than others to have. Now, many of us know what it's like to talk a child through the loss of a pet. We know what it's like to uh, talk a child through fear. 
Maybe others of us will understand the emotions that rise up in emotions of hard conversations and relationships when we hear things like, we need to talk, or there is something that I have to tell you. Other hard conversations we all know include walking with loved ones as they struggle with health, with doubt, with their purpose, maybe with sin. And, and in that, we see that these conversations are not only hard, but sometimes they are uneasy. Many of us maybe even wrestle with them in similar ways. And so we can understand these things. But there's these other conversations, the other hard conversations, where we don't tend to see eye eye on them. They're not similar things for us. There might be lots of reasons for this. Each one of us has different experiences that shape our view and our way of looking at things. There are different values that each one of us find important that others of us might not find important. Some of us might have different views on the Bible, its purpose, and what level of authority we give it. In quest to know right answers, to teach right belief, and to live out right behavior, and to convince others of that truth, sometimes it seems that we as Christians lose our humanity in the way that we pursue rightness. Sometimes we lose our humanity in the way that we pursue rightness. Now, I was thinking this week of conversations that I've seen modeled both in the church and in my upbringing. And the one conversation that we all know that can be difficult, oh, you're wondering where I'm going, is not really, I'm not going to say a topic, but it's the dinner table conversation, right? How many of you have been in a dinner table conversation where somebody in your family has brought up something you don't agree with, and what happens? What happens? There's a clash. How many people have experienced a clash at some point with either your family, in-laws, or extended family at the dinner table? Some of you have said you've never raised that. I'm not saying that you're lying, but I'm just reminding you lying's a sin. How many of you have had dinner table conversations that have turned heated? Right? This is a very normal thing. It's okay to admit. All of us have conversations that have turned heated. And yes, that is true of even Mennonites who value peace and sit at the table and try to keep the peace at all things. And sometimes our approach to keeping peace actually makes the situation worse because we compartmentalize it until we can't anymore. And then we explode! Right? I've seen it time and time again. My mom comes from a long Anabaptist family. My dad comes from an atheist background. He speaks his mind. You think I speak my mind? You should hear my dad. And, and I watch this tension growing up at the dinner table. Right? You couldn't bring up something for debate because uh, mom would stay quiet to keep the peace. How many moms did that in your conversations? Maybe it's the opposite in your family. right? And dad just dominated this is right, that is wrong, end of conversation. You guys know dads like that? Right? So all of us can equate that hard conversations, sometimes in our pursuit of rightness, we tend to lose our humanity and we either shut down or we shut everyone else up. Not only do individuals struggle with hard conversations and quests for rightness, but we as the church have often struggled with how to address and posture ourselves to these hard conversations. The church has often lived in this tension 
of how do we be a people of love, but also how do we be a people that stand for truth or speak truth. Some argue that, hey, it's more important to be loving than truthful, and so I'm going to give myself to loving. Why others would say, hey, it's way more important for me to be truthful than loving because being truthful is being loving, right? I hear there's some of you in here because you knew what I was going with that, right? Like, there are two polarized ends. What is greater to be loving or to be truthful? Now, in this reality, we seem to get two polarized ends, love and truth. And, and similarly, Jesus addressed the polarized ends of his day, too. Often when Jesus spoke, he was actually trying to bring two camps together. There were moments where he says, you must have spirit and or grace and truth. It's the same polarized conversation. In those, the most important word isn't grace or spirit and truth. The most important word is and. The most important word is and, and that is the word we have lost. And is what holds the tensions together. Jesus also talked about his kingdom in that same tension. And he was addressing belief systems of their day of what the presence and the reign of God looks like. And he declared that it's here and yet to come. In that way, the church needs to learn the balance of what it means to live out love and truth, living into the idea that and is the most important concept in these conversations. However, knowing that as information, right? Okay, well, we know it. We can close our books and go home. Uh, I know i got to be loving and truthful, right? We, we tend to think that once we get the right revelation or the right information on a conversation, uh, it's the both and. Okay, we got it, Jeff. Uh, that's enough to fix the problem. However, let me just tell you, though we as a church like to talk like this, there is no way to name and claim right behavior. You don't get to just name it, claim it, as a reality for us, and all of a sudden you start living out so redeemed, right? Like, it doesn't just say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to understand it means to be loving and truthful, and all of a sudden you changed. Right information, we like to think, will always lead to right imitation. But our minds, our theology, and the world doesn't live that way. That's why we live in echo chambers, because we know we can argue back and forth all day, and what happens? Nobody changes, right? Right information doesn't change everything. We always will struggle with the both and. The best thing that we can do as a church is develop healthy postures to these hard conversations. As Jesus watched his followers wrestle with both the tensions of his life and his kingdom, uh, he also watched them wrestle with the hard conversations of their day. They wrestled with their own desires. They wrestled with the times that they lived in. And at one point, Jesus is looking at them, and he's wondering if they will make anything of their lives. He wonders if they will be able to address the hard conversations without them. In this era where Jesus is trying to teach them, and all they are doing is wrestling with, do we get to sit at your left hand or your right hand? Again, the polarized. So Jesus looks at them, and he says this. In John 17, 20 to 21, I'm going to pray, he says, and I'm praying not only for these disciples, he tells his Father in heaven, 
but also for all who ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you have sent me. Jesus knew that we would always struggle with hard conversations. This is why in his prayer, he doesn't only pray for his disciples, he begins to pray for all who will come after them and believe in him because of them. That goes for the people who live before you and I, and that same prayer is for those who come after us. Jesus prays that the church will be unified and that their unity will be a witness to the world. Now, there are many hard conversations today. One hard conversation we looked at last week was the conversation of Judge Kavanaugh, and that has taken to our media streams. It has become uh, the number one thing we're talking about on Facebook. It's a trending item on Twitter. Uh, And today we're going to see that when we address hard conversations like this or other ones, such as why is there pain in the world, that we need to develop a healthy posture. And so I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. We're going to see a posture there that we can learn from. And we read this passage last week. As you're finding it, um, I encourage you in this way that say it was this idea that we looked at last way of just one verse from it. We looked at verse 4, and we looked at how uh, together we are to discover the reflection of Jesus' truth. Now, this was a time where the church was full of Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. They were fighting, how do we connect the historic roots and traditions of the Jewish church with these broader context people that have all of a sudden shown up in our church? So they began to have these divisions about legalism, freedom, law, love, church authority, tradition, and forward-thinking people. Those struggles sound eerily familiar to us too, don't they? In Corinth, the church was also struggling what it meant to be faithful in the midst of a pagan empire. And as the church grew with a whole bunch of outsiders, there were also questions uh, that who has authority? What is authority? What relations exist between the church and state? How do we bring the culture that was seemingly Jewish into other contexts now? And, and then, in the midst of that, you mix this stuff that Paul is teaching on, these gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's these kind of crazy things that begin to happen in their context. And if the social and traditional divisions weren't enough, all of a sudden now, people are falling over and speaking in funny languages and sharing prophetic words, and people are just sitting there going, I don't get it. I don't know what truth is anymore. I don't know what's right and what's wrong. And these things become a hot button in their church community. So in love for his church community, Paul, follower of Jesus, begins to write to the church, giving them a posture for these hard conversations. Last week we saw that God knows the truth. We only see a reflection of it. Today we're going to see in this passage one verse that really teaches us that it is important to be as loving as it is important to be right. It isn't that being right or loving isn't important, but both are as important as the other. So if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am 
nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. We're going to look at that in our next series, in our character series. Just remember that. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will eventually cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror, and then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known, and know these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, this passage we know pretty well. We've probably heard it preached a lot in the church. We've probably quoted it. It's one of those things that we uh, steal a lot of sayings from when we're writing get well cards and I love you cards to people. We use it in weddings. In this letter, Paul is teaching them that these gifts of the Holy Spirit come with this reality that they are gifts of revelation and knowledge. Now, I think most of us long to know what's on God's heart and what's on his mind, right? We long to know what's on God's heart and mind. God, just speak to me so I know, right? Do we, do we ever talk like that? Do you ever get frustrated? Because you can't discern what's on God's heart and his mind. I think most of us want to uh, kind of have an inside scoop on what God's doing. Paul tells us, that there is something as important as knowledge and revelation. It's important to know what's on God's heart and mind, but it's also important to know what, it t- what makes it tick. That equal thing is love. It is important to have truth and love. The posture of truth and love in which Paul gives the church in Corinth doesn't just apply to these conversations around the Holy Spirit. It actually was a posture that applied to all the conversations that was happening in the church at the time, including the hard conversations of our day. In the midst of hard conversations, the church is really faced with a hard challenge. Do we find ourselves taking sides, reflecting the divisions in our world, or can we find a way to challenge ourselves to transcend these things and to overcome them? This week, we're going to look at verse 2 of this passage to see what we can learn about a posture that we need to have as we address hard conversations. In verse 2, it says, If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Our posture for hard conversations realizes it's important to be as loving as it is important to be right. They aren't opposite ends of the scale. It is a both and. And there's four big concepts that happen in this verse around this. 
First, we see this idea that Paul says, even if I had the gift of prophecy, which Paul does, he identifies later, so it's kind of funny that he says it this way. But the word there for prophecy actually means to have the gift of divine inspiration or the ability to declare the purposes of God. In both foretelling ways, God's going to do this for you, and foretelling ways. Knock that off, God says. Right? And so even if we have prophecy... This gift that brings us the knowledge of what's going to happen and what's going on, um, it's not enough. Prophecy now is a very big gift to the church, especially in moments of discernment or in moments of vision casting or, or when we need to confront an issue, right? If we study the prophetic gifting throughout the New Testament, we would see it's a gift that's helpful in these areas. It's also a gift that's visionary. It comes from a high view. It, it is uh, an ability to see what is really the motivation behind people, right? Just look at John the Baptist. Oh, you're sleeping with somebody and it's not even your wife. It's your brother's wife, right? Like that's prophetic gifting. As Paul said, it can bring to light God's secret plans. The problem is prophetic giftings can see the heart of God, and then for them, being right is the most important thing because I know what's on God's mind. I'm speaking as a person with a prophetic gifting. That becomes really important for me to know what God's mind is and declare it. Then Paul says, if I possessed all knowledge. Paul here is speaking to the intellectual approach to moral wisdom. Now, there were moments in Paul's day, the Stoics and stuff like that, that, that believed you could reach a certain part, a point of kind of um, good living if you could get just your thinking right. And, and in some ways, Protestant Christianity has taken more influence from the Stoic philosophers than it has from Jesus because it's all about getting our salvation right. It's all about getting our theology right, and then we'll have right everything else. Paul here is talking about those who were in the church thinking like this. They were great people. Now, we know people that think intellectually. They bring great help to apologetics, the evidences of God. They bring great help to science, to strategic thinking. However, those who think intellectually, as the word means here for knowledge, can have a hard time connecting with people that think in the spirit or people that are emotional like love, right? Think about it. The people that you know are intellectual. There's always a fine line between being a genius and being, what's the other? Insane, right? Like, wait, we know intellectual people. They, they don't tend to lean towards the spirit, and they don't tend to lead towards emotion. Next, Paul says, if I have faith, I could move mountains. Paul's most likely here actually referencing Jesus when he says, hey, guys, you know, I don't know why you don't have so much faith, but if you just had a little faith, a little bit of faith like a mustard seed, then by all means you could tell that mountain to move, and that mountain will move. Right? The word for faith here represents the idea of truth, actually. There are people who have a solid and firm faith. We love these people because they never seem to have doubt. Do you know people like that? They never seem to have doubt on their faith, on what God is, what he's doing. They bring much to our church community about what it means to trust God in the Bible. However, these people often then think they have all the truth and they don't need to grow anymore because I know it. I have it all figured out. I'm just trusting God with everything and everything's going to be all right. I don't need to think about all that other stuff, right? So what they tend to do then is discredit the need to grow anymore with the gifts of prophecy 
or to love because it's more important to know truth. In this short verse, Paul hits on every tension that's going on in this church community and maybe even the ones that are happening in our church today. Paul doesn't say that prophecy, knowledge, and faith are not important. He says these things are a gift to the church. They need each other. But we also welcome each other with honor. And part of that is learning to love. However, it's also important that these streams are in the church. They're needed. We need to understand truth. It's not bad to have the gift of prophecy. We need to understand truth. Right? They're all needed. They all bring truth. However, they not only need each other, but they also all need love as a very important glue. The King James here actually uses the word charity, and it was important in in the time that the King James Bible was written. It's less accurate, but the word for love there is actually a form of the word agape. It is the, the word that means brotherly love, affection, goodwill, perfect love. It can also be used, this word here, the form of the word, to describe love feasts. So if you've grown up in Church of the Brethren, uh, Brethren in Christ church movements, this is where you actually get your idea of love feast. And so I love the idea that this word can be used as that because what happens is Paul's saying prophecy, those with faith, those with intellect, they all need to sit down at the table together. And they need to do so with love and deep affection. There are five notes that I want us to take away from this verse this morning. Five notes in which will help us develop a posture and which reflects to others in our hard conversations, healthy and helpful things. First, don't hear me wrong, being right matters. It is not wrong to be right. It feels good to be wrong, as the songs say in the 80s, but it feels it is right that matters, right? In fact, we should try to live rightly, think rightly, and act rightly. Paul tells the church in Corinth that if we tend to just kind of continue to pursue God, we will find what he calls earlier in his passage, the mind of Christ. He tells the church in Rome we should not be conformed to, conformed to the knowledge of the world, but transformed by the knowledge of God. As God's children, we need to figure out what is right. And then live by it. We aren't trying to live right in the eyes of others. We aren't trying to be right for the sake of our bipartisan political groups. We aren't trying to be right uh, to make our genealogical family systems happy. Uh, We are only trying to live right in the eyes of God. Now sometimes we in the church fear this pursuit of truth and being right uh, because we find intellect or truth the opposite of what we think God's truth is sometimes. And as a result, uh, those, especially with the gift of faith, hear me, uh, Christianity is not an excuse for intellectual laziness. Do not be afraid of the pursuit. Faith is good. Pursuing what's right and growing in it is truth, too. Faith doesn't call Jesus' followers to be intellectually stupid. We must and ought to be zealous about understanding scriptures, listening to the Holy Spirit to come to the correct conclusions so that we can think and research and work diligently to understand both the political and the cultural complexities of our day. Being right matters. Pursue it. Secondly, though, being loved matters. We should never let our desire to be right interfere or override our desire to be loving. You know, that can be said easier 
than it often is to live it out, right? How many people know, yeah, I know I need to be loving, but at times you fail, right? Especially if somebody offends you or says something mean, it becomes harder. And why I think that is, personally, is because we often act out of our giftings, those things like prophecy that are at the heart of who we are. They're part of our identity. Now, loving is innately in us. We know we need to love our family and so on and so on. But part of love is a learned trait as well. Honor doesn't just happen in most of us. We have to learn it. If we were to read the whole kind of, uh, well, let me just say this first. Sometimes being loving can feel at tension with who God has created us to be. And so it's hard for us to realize that being loved matters. Paul's not saying it's pointless to understand God's secret plans through the Holy Spirit. To even possess knowledge or have great faith. And if we read the whole New Testament, we'd see that it's clearly uh, important. And God wants us to know more. And that's exactly what we as Christians should be trying to do. But to say that love is as important as these things is not saying that these things are not important. What Paul says is we can't have any of these things unless we have love in them. It's all meaningless without love. Third, what we see in this passage is that love orients us to Christ. What we see in this verse is that love enables us to these other pursuits to be in the right place. One author writes, Love is like the sun at the center of the Christian ethical solar system, holding the other virtues in their proper orbits. We're quick often to say God is love. We know that Jesus is the perfect example of love, right? We, we could talk about all the places it is. But love also is the fulfillment of what Jesus prayed for his followers to keep us unified and despite our differences to have a unity that witnesses to the world. And when I was working on a sermon this week, I found that when I got to this point, a song came in my head from 1975 by Captain and Tennille. Love will keep us together. Right? Do you guys know that song? It's important. Love is the glue that keeps us together both with Christ and with each other. You guys need to expand your musical collection so that we can connect the same language. <laughs> Fourth, our pursuit of love must be as evident for our love for knowledge. It's, it's good to know that we're pursuing truth. It's good to know that having love is as important as knowing truth. But it also needs to be evident on us. If both aren't present in us, there's a few things that will happen. One, we'll divide into camps of right and wrong. He's right, she's wrong. And we, as humans, need to remember we only see a reflection. Neither are right, but both are wrong. Both camps are neither right, but both camps are wrong. Secondly, what we'll see is that we talk in absolutes. This is kind of our version of uh, we're going to just stay here. Uh, in the same place, fighting somebody else's idea of right. And we end up backing ourselves into a corner where we meet either emotional death or we have to find a place to exist elsewhere because there is no way that we are going to be more loving and accept someone else's idea of what it means to be right. Secondly, the other thing that happens, I mean, thirdly, the other thing that happens is we can kind of see the other person as corrupt. So if we don't have love and truth evident in us, then we begin to name somebody else as corrupt, and we'll begin to act out of a false love.